Hi, uh, welcome back to the Everyday Theologian Podcast. Uh, my name is Chad Lewis, and I am here, uh, as always, with... Pastor Ty! Uh, welcome. Uh, we're getting ready. Uh, this this coming Friday is Pastor Ty's official ordination. Yes. Uh, we, um, we mentioned and uh, kind of celebrated a little bit a couple of weeks ago. Um when she was officially recommended for ordination. Mm-hmm. And now the whole process is almost done. Almost. We're almost exciting. there. Yes. Yep, just a few days away. It is so exciting. In what was years in the making. <laughs> so pretty cool to finally be at this step. Yeah. And with, uh, with your ordination, I'm sure pretty much the only thing you're thinking about right now um, and the fact that, you know, we, we talked about confirmation a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I was confirmed Catholic. So all of the like Methodist teaching stuff that yeah. most people get, I never had. Sure. Oh, sure. Yeah, so yeah. figured this would be a good opportunity to talk about Methodist stuff. <laughs> uh, if you don't know much about it, hey, you and I are in the same boat today. So hopefully we'll both learn some stuff. Um, but I thought we'd start a little bit. What's, what's the ordination process like? Cause I know that that goes, it starts with seminary. That's technically like three years, right? Right. And then you've got a bunch more time of mm-hmm. doing yeah. a lot. Yeah. And actually we could say that technically the process begins even before seminary. Um, because the the way the Methodist Church has set it up, and of course it's changed a little bit here or there, tweaked uh, from time to time over the years. But but even from the time I was in college, which whether you want to believe or not, whether I want to believe it or not, um, <laughs> <laughs> that was twenty five years ago. Um, that I even started the process back then. So within the Methodist denomination within the United Methodist Church, um, it begins with the inquiry process. And what is that? Yeah. (laughs) So, so if somebody is out there saying, you know, I kind of feel like God might be calling me to ministry, to work in the church, to serve God some way, um, that's not, just, you know, your everyday life kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, kind of beyond that. Um, that is a process where you would come to your pastor, um, to your district superintendent, and say, so I feel like God's kind of leading me, kind of calling me into some kind of ministry. And um, and then they'd say, okay, well, let's talk about that some more. Let's process that. And what are the best things about this process is that all along the way, you're continually having different groups of people affirm that call Mm. in your life. So we're not out there going, I want to be a pastor, go to seminary, and here I am. There's constantly people coming alongside of you saying, yes, I see that gift in you. Yes, I see how God is calling you. Yes, I see the fruit of the ministry you're already a part of. Let's encourage you and help hold you accountable and and get you um, to the place where we where God is calling you to lead in ministry. Okay. So in that inquiry process, 
um, you ask a couple of those questions. Can you see fruit fruit in your ministry? Um, what is the ministry you actually feel called to? I've talked about it a couple of times in different sermons that uh, I initially thought that I would be an ordained deacon. And an ordained deacon in the United Methodist Church is different from an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church. So a deacon is one who is typically um, doing a, a pastoral ministry, but it is more of um, like a more of a missional ministry, more of a okay. hands and feet type thing. So um, they do not itinerate. They're not appointed by a bishop. They could work anywhere. They don't have to be employed by a congregation. They can be, be employed by a VA hospital and be a chaplain. Okay. They could be, um, they could oversee a, a feeding program in a community, and that could be where they're employed. Or uh, I have a friend that I'm being ordained with here just um, in a few days, and she is currently, even though she's a part of our conference in Western Pennsylvania, She's actually doing ministry in El Paso, Texas. And so she, her work has been primarily with immigrant populations. Okay. So doing the work of the church, being ordained even, but in a very specific ministry. Sure. Um, so that's the really cool thing. There's a, there's a deacon up in Butler who works at the... Um, at the j- prison, at the jail, you know, I know, I know all kinds of deacons, and they have all kinds of jobs that don't necessarily show up within a church setting. Okay, really cool, right? How does um, that how does that connection work then? Because I know the Methodist system is very connectional. Yes. Um, how how are they? How do they op- how, how would a deacon operate then within within the system? Yeah, so deacons have a secondary appointment. They have a primary and a secondary. So while the bishop doesn't appoint them to a job, they can they have then a, um, another appointment to a congregation. Okay. So, um, but again, it's not necessarily a paid position. Right. If that congregation, like I know a deacon who who worked at um, through for UPMC, but then the the church that she was connected to, she actually is part of their music ministry. Okay, you know, so maybe they're part of um, the church in that kind of way. Maybe they're the associate pastor at a church, um, so they just might not be full time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's. It's different for every deacon, which is the really cool thing that, um, you know, you're not going to find two that do exactly the same thing, Yeah, who are called to exactly the same ministry. That's really neat. It's really neat how they can um, see that and, and work towards that. So, you know, they're called, and, and their, their calling is different in that they're called to the word, they're called to be able to preach, they're called to justice. Um, 
but their their calling is not the same ordination that I would have in that I am also called to ordering the church, which means helping the governing of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm and for me, the biggest part of my call is to sacrament. Okay. And our sacraments in the United Methodist Church are baptism and holy communion. Yeah. So while deacons participate, and help with those things, they're not um, ordained to to officiate over those things. However, deacons, because marriage is not a sacrament, because um, burying burial is not a sacrament, deacons can do weddings and funerals, and um, so they can be your pastor to do all kinds of things. Interesting, um, but not the order of the church and not the sacrament. That's that's those are more specifically the job of the elder. So that's why and and elders also are the ones who are appointed by a bishop who yeah. get moved around. Um, and that's one of the things that we say when we're you know when we're coming before the board of ordained ministry and they're asking us all the questions. Um, one of those questions, well, actually, a couple of the questions are surrounded. Uh, surround the the topic of moving and being willing to go where the bishop and the appointive cabinet discern your gifts are best used. And so that's a big thing to be able to say, yes, I feel called to, to go where I'm needed. But that's one of the big differences then between the deacon and the elder. Deacons, they find their job, they move wherever they want, <laughs> you know, yeah. and the elders don't. <laughs> But, and we do have, I mean, it's not that we don't have any say, um, but for the most part, you know, we just are going to be our, our ones who need to be willing to allow the spirit to move and mm-hmm. speak and, and guide and move where we're needed. That's so. a special call. That yeah. is a very special call. Yeah. It's kind of a, it's really big. It's kind of a big deal. You know, there's not a lot of, um, of other denominations that do that. Presbyterian church, you know, they have a yeah. call system. So pastors and churches are, you know, putting a job posting and looking mm-hmm. for a pastor just as a pastor is looking for a job. I mean, they have a special way that they do it. <laughs> so you're not just going on indeed. <laughs> 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 but still. Yeah, it's a completely different way of doing things. Yeah, it it yeah. seems like I'm sure that there's a good. Uh, I don't want to say a good reason because that that kind of undermines the itinerancy. But mm. I feel that there's got to be, uh, yeah, for lack of a better word, a good reason that it has lasted this long. Mm-hmm. Because originally it was because of uh, a lack of ministers, right? Well, when it when when the Methodist Church like really started in the states, mm-hmm. yeah, in the states we were known as circuit riders. That's what they were called. Um, literally, a pastor, uh, you know, their their life was on horseback, and they would they'd be back to your area to offer communion. Um, hopefully in a few months, maybe in a year. Yeah. And and so then you had local pastors or lay speakers that would 
lead that group, that congregation, you know, usually meeting in a house um, or maybe the schoolhouse if it was big enough, a big enough group or a large mm-hmm. enough area. And then it was a circuit rider. So guy on horseback and just riding from town to town doing that kind of work. Yeah, pretty, pretty wild. So that's just kind of um, been part of the process of continuing that that um, that history. And we also have, you know, we do have so many tiny churches in little towns that some of them aren't even towns, <laughs> you know. Um, but so even now we have pastors that serve three, four, five, seven churches. And um, some of them do kind of a circuit where they're going to three or four churches on a week, on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, some have, uh, like I said, like a lay speaker that will preach it maybe three of them one week and, and then they kind of flip those and kind of rotate through. But yeah, so we still have some of that. We still have some of that. It's really, if you, if you recognize the history of it, um, it can be a really neat thing. <laughs> so it's modern day. It's still kind of an issue of a lot of churches, not enough uh, ordained pastors. And for the smaller churches that may not be able to afford a full-time pastor, they still use the, uh, like a, a more modern circuit version. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But itinerancy is, is still that, that tradition of moving around and right. serving the, the greater community, not just one spot. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so for some of the multiple point charges, it is that they're not able to afford a full-time pastor. And so they come together to be able to have a full-time pastor, um, between them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but then we even have within our system. So we have ordained elders, ordained deacons. We have licensed local pastors. Um, so that is going to a about a 12-week, 9 to 12-week uh, program or uh, an intensive two-week. And, and then those individuals are given a license to be able to be a pastor. So maybe one of those churches that can't afford a full-time pastor, maybe they can afford to pay somebody like quarter-time salary. So um, there aren't enough pastors in that area, and or there's not a pastor who is able to do a quarter-time appointment. Mm-hmm. Um, the district superintendent at that point can say to someone, You've gone through this licensing process. I'd like to invoke your license and have you pastor this congregation at a quarter time pay or whatever it might be, because there's that fluctuates, of course, yeah. depending on the need and situation. Um, and so your license um, allows you to be the pastor of this congregation for the period of time that we set forth. So it doesn't allow them to be that same pastor down the road, <laughs> yeah, you know, they don't have, those credentials can't be used anywhere other than in that church that they're appointed to, okay. um, where that license is allowing them to be. So that's another way. We also have, um, uh, there's another uh, program, um, and I'm not thinking of the exact name, and I don't have it written in front of me, um, 
There's another program where people go through licensing school. It's called course of study. And, and so it's a longer process. They're not going to seminary full time, mm-hmm. but some seminaries are offering essentially a seminary level course. So several courses, they do it over several years and it's called course of study. And so those people, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's in between, but, it, but just for, uh, to help us kind of understand, it's kind of in between um, the licensed local pastor and the ordained elder where you haven't done all of the seminary education, but you've done more than the local pastor licensing education. Um, But those folks are uh, commissioned, and so so they are given more of those um, pastor-type responsibilities and can use them in different places. So... so, um, We've got a lot of different avenues yeah. in the United Methodist Church where you can end up serving. And that's part of the reason that that inquiry process that we talked about a couple minutes ago, why it's so important, because there's so many different ways that you can be engaged in ministry, that you can fulfill that call that you feel that God has placed upon you. Because some of someone might be saying, I there's no way I can go to seminary. Yeah. Maybe it's the cost. It could be cost prohibitive. It could be your family situation. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be, you know, you can't leave a full-time job and engage in these courses. Yeah. So how is it that you can fulfill this call that you feel God has placed upon you? Um, in what way? In what avenue? And, and there's just so many options. It's, it's just it's so incredible the way that um, that's able to happen. So seminary can't be a limiting factor mm-hmm. in, in a call that you might have to serve okay. God. So that's kind of cool. Tons of processes then. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah, because then once you get through that inquiry process and, and you're kind of affirmed in that, um, listen, the local church is actually one of the biggest parts. Your local church has to say, yes, we think that this person should be in, you know, specialized ministry. Mm. And so you have to actually have, um, within, within our congregations, we have an annual congregational meeting. That's Mm -hmm. our charge conference. And that group of people has to vote and approve that you would go forward in this process. Oh, And without that, you can't take next steps. But so there's that immediate, the people that know you best, right, are saying, yes, we think they need to go forward. From there, you go to your district com- committee, mm-hmm. your district committee on ministry, and then you begin this process with them and with a mentor uh, to just go through a whole lot of more questions, to go through this whole, this. there's like a big book that you go through, just really thinking through your life and how God's calling you and preparing you and all of this. And then that committee has to say, not only is your local church affirming you, but now we'll affirm you and recommend you. Um, and, and then the process just continues from wow. there. So it's one step after another, after another. And it's usually after that point when you're with your district committee that you even consider going to seminary. Wow. So and now that can happen 
relatively quickly, mm-hmm. within about a year, you can be in that process. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lots of lots of different steps, lots of checks and balances, lots of affirmation of ministry. You're not just flying solo. You're not just doing it all on your own. Um, so it's a it's a long process. It's a difficult process, but it's a very beneficial process. Yeah, and it's a good one to be a part of. So yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, my process was a lot longer than most. <laughs> <laughs> they do have a, a, a limit <laughs> to a certain number of years that they will allow to, for you to go through the process before making you do it again. Um, so once I was in seminary and, and I was in that kind of process, um, I had to do a psychological evaluation um, then I met with, uh, you know, our conference psychologist to review mm-hmm. it. Um, I had to still meet with all of those committees annually, be, you know, just checking in, making sure things are going well. Yeah. So really, um, in the seminary process, by the time you graduate in three years, you sh- could be at the point where you are ready to be commissioned. And that process means that you have um, answered, you have written answers to 16 different questions that are in our book of discipline. Um, You have been recommended by the district committee to go forward for your questioning for provisional membership. Okay. And, um, And you could have that done by the time you're ready to graduate. Now that's a lot of work because you're doing your seminary classes and doing these questions, but but if you you know if you figure out your timing, you can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so while I potentially could have graduated seminary in 2012 and been commissioned at the same time, um, I did this thing where I decided to get married. <laughs> So I graduated seminary and then I got married two months later and moved to another state and another conference. Uh. So I was actually rather strategic in the way I did this because um, I wanted at that point, I thought I was going to be ordained in the Baltimore Washington conference. And instead of having to deal with a bunch of extra paperwork, Mm -hmm. I just allowed myself to transfer before I was commissioned. And so I then met with a district committee there in the Baltimore Washington conference. And I started through the process. I didn't have to go through the whole process, but I just got to kind of pick up where I left off in Western PA. Okay. And that way, um, because there are some extra things you have to go through if you're ordained and moving from one conference to another. So I said, I'm not going to worry about that. Let me just move, and then I'll pick up from where I left off, and it won't add more to the process. Yeah, that makes sense. Sure. But then it added more to the process because I didn't go any further in the process. (laughs) (laughs) I just kept meeting with the district committee. But, you know, I didn't really feel like God was keeping me in in that conference like I just there just was never I was never um my spirit was never at peace and my husband knew it and God really was working on my husband and because I I moved to Maryland because I knew that 
I just agreed with my husband that I wanted to be with him and where his family was. And he said, you know, he didn't want to move from Maryland. I'm like, that's fine. God uses people wherever we are, right? Mm -hmm. So of course I can move there. But God caused his spirit to be unsettled. And he was the one then that said, Ty, I think we need to move to Western Pennsylvania. And so I'm the one going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you sure? No, we don't need to do that. Why would we do that? And he's like, no, I think this is really what God's calling us to. So, so then it was as a result of that that I made contact with one of the district superintendents who had actually been a mentor before I moved. And I said, okay, so I've been to licensing school because that's actually one of the requirements that if you're coming to be ordained, deacon or elder, you also have to go to licensing school. Here's one of the crazy things they don't tell you. This isn't the only profession that you find it in either. <laughs> you go to seminary, but that doesn't mean that they've really prepared you for life in an actual church. Yeah. Right. We don't talk. We don't go through the practical conversation around baptism. We don't practice holding babies. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> we, we we can even graduate seminary without preaching sermons. I don't know how, but it's true. You can. So, um, <laughs> so, um, so licensing school is one of the important pieces in that, and they also do a lot of um, a lot of the paperwork, a lot mm-hmm. of the annual reporting, the importance of finance and trustees, and all the different committees within the church. So, uh, so I had been through licensing school because that was a requirement, but that allowed me to come back to this conference, and I said, you know, for us to move back. I'd really, it would really be best if we, if I could end up with a full-time appointment with healthcare. Yeah. Because my husband's coming and he doesn't have a guaranteed job. Uh, so, so they actually were able to do that. And that's how I, that's how we moved back. I was at the Fishertown charge in the Bedford area, um, a three point charge, but they were able to pay me the salary of a licensed local pastor. So that's less than a full elder. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I was affordable (laughs) (laughs) and I could come in and continue the process where I left off, um, four years before that. (laughs) Four years, five years, five years before that. So, um, so then after we moved back, I then went through the commissioning process. So I was commissioned in 2018, and then there's a three-year pro- uh, uh, period. It's almost like a probationary period. Okay. Right, where it's or, or like I've also equated it to um, a doctor going through residency. You're a doctor, you have all the credentials, yeah. but we're just going to allow you to have a couple years to kind of get your feet wet and mm-hmm. and make sure that you've got, you know, support around you and and we're going to make you make sure you're going to like these special um uh, workshops and and continue to mold you and help you and make sure you're meeting on a regular basis with a mentor and a small group. So that those first couple years of ministry can be good, really good. And if there's things you're questioning, you can help figure it out. But at the end of those three years, we they also have us um, 
answer another set of questions, another 16 or 14 questions. So we have to write them all out. We go to the Board of Ordained Ministry and we meet with these different groups and, and have conversation about it. They, they want to make sure that we know our doctrine, our yeah. history. They want to make sure we understand what it is to um, talk to your congregation about baptism and communion. They want to have conversations about um, how we engage our community. And um, so so they just they go through that process. And it's it's definitely a nerve-wracking thing. Um, but it's it's just so beneficial. Uh, and the, and they can also then say whether they're going to approve you and recommend you to be ordained mm-hmm. or, if they want you to wait another year, if they're going to continue you and say, we think you need more work on this. It doesn't really sound like you understand this. Mm. And if you're not able to, to articulate it and not only in writing, but verbally, then we think we need, we want you to take more time, you know, and maybe you'll find a mentor and work through some things, um, help learn more about one aspect or another. So, um, so there's good reason that the process is as long as it is, you know, um, and hopefully God willing, you make it through the end and you find yourself where God was calling you to begin with. Yeah. So you never know. Um, but yeah, so it's a long process. I added a, a good four or five years in there that didn't have to be in there. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's a good one, in my opinion. So it could, it could take as long as you need or be as short as doing the, that ordination process while in seminary. Right, yeah. So, I mean, so if I had, um, because technically, now I, I did say that I started having conversations like 25 years ago. Um, but I actually started in 2009. I had the initial conversation when I started, um, seminary. Mm -hmm. So from 2009 to 2012, in those three years, I, I, I could have done all of the work needed to then be commissioned in 2012, that then I would have done three years of, um, like the probationary period, provisional, sorry, mm-hmm. provisional period. And then so it it, w- it could have been that in six years I would have been completely ordained, fully ordained. But my my timeline, God's timeline for me, just ended up being a bit different. And that happens. And that happens, yeah. absolutely. Because, you know, I was able to go to seminary full time. That's just something I was able to do. Uh, but there are people who um, commute, you know, they still have a full-time job or maybe they're serving as a pastor while they're in seminary. Mm-hmm. So they're going to take four years to do it instead of three. Yeah. Or there's somebody who's going to classes at night. And so their seminary process takes six years or even eight Yeah. because they're doing night classes and fitting a couple in because their work has been gracious and allowing them to take a day off here or there, mm-hmm. you know, doing four 10 hour days instead. You know what I mean? So, yeah. um, yeah, everybody comes to it differently. It's a, it's so that's a really neat part 
And there's so many different seminaries as well. Yeah. So some people do still go from college right to seminary, but a lot of people are second career. That's a process. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a process. So. No, I know. And you, you mentioned this a little bit earlier. Um, the different, uh, I guess, levels of uh, pastorship that sure. you can achieve um, all have different, I don't know if I want to say restrictions, but like there's mm. there's different things that... Um, different things we're called to or appointed Called to, to. Or, or even like serving in a church mm-hmm. that you're able to do, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I've heard before that um, like licensed local have uh, certain restrictions on like communion. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering what, you know, what over the course of our history has led to, uh, you know, that particular tradition mm. or if that's like a holdover. Cause I know uh, John Wesley was Anglican. Right. So I'm wondering if that's like a holdover thing from uh, his uh, pastoral career and spiritual mm-hmm. upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas like the original circuit riders, those commissioned pastors, like they were the ones in charge of doing communion. So I'm wondering yeah. like, is that is that just a tradition that we hold or is there like more significance behind it because mm-hmm. I, I know there's other people that have that question or, sure. or work in ministry in other ways that aren't directly affiliated with a church mm-hmm. and it's like we want to do communion but we're not allowed to call it communion <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to call it something else and still do it anyway uh, i've heard that story i've, I've done that once or twice um because yeah. it, it's this weird thing like i read in scripture that the Jesus says, whenever you're together. Yeah. Not whenever you're together and have somebody who's allowed to do mm-hmm. this. And so, I, to me, this is one of those things that uh, seems particular mm-hmm. within our denomination. That I'm mm-hmm. like, what's what's the thing around that? Okay. And like, sure. What other, what other, I guess, well, baptism's the only other sacrament. Right. But like, what other things might be like, if you if you haven't made it this far in your training or experience. Mm. Okay, so um part of the part of our denomination, right? If you're a denomination, there's usually a governing rules, um, a governing book, sure. governing body, right? Yeah. So um and yes, John Wesley was ex- was uh, was influenced by his Anglican uh, life, you know. Um, so, so just as the Anglican Church has their governing body, their polity, their rules, um, we call it polity, but um, we just have an order and a way of doing things. Mm-hmm. This is what we believe. And this is, you know, that spells out why we do what we do uh, or how it will work. <laughs> and and 
it's not something that is stagnant. So it's not that it's carried over from John Wesley. Things have continued to change and progress and evolve um, over over the centuries. Um, but it's a gr- it's all of United Methodism who comes together. We actually come together annually at our general conference. No, sorry, not annually, quadrennially. So every four years, um, sorry, annual conference happens every year, and that's what we're about to do at the end of the week. So <laughs> I'm a little distracted by that. And that's that's districts? Um, no. So, well, we do have, so the local church meets annually for their election of, of, um, of, uh, committees, uh, you know, committee people, um, and for several other things that we do annually. And that's charge conference. That's charge conference. Um, then we have districts and districts also have an annual meeting. Okay. Those typically happen after our annual conference for our conference. (laughs) So it goes local church, district. So our district is mainly Beaver and a part of Butler uh, counties here locally. Mm -hmm. Then we have our um, annual, our conference. So local district conference. Um, That for us is Western Pennsylvania. So north to south, west, all of western, all of the borders of Pennsylvania. But on our eastern border for our conference, um, if you kind of go over to like Bedford and Altoona, okay, that's kind of our eastern border. Uh, but but it's just just west of that <laughs> line. Mm-hmm. They're actually in the next conference over. Um, sometimes a conference will be a state. So most of West Virginia is a state, but their Eastern Panhandle is technically part of the West or of the Baltimore Washington conference, okay. part of Maryland. Um, so it, it depends. It's a geographical area, yeah. right? Then it goes from our annual conference to a jurisdiction. There are five jurisdictions within the within the United States. We're part of the um, northeast jurisdiction, so from West Virginia east and then north. So we're all of New England, essentially, mm-hmm. um, West Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, up. Um, from that, that meets quadrennally, and that that's where our bishops are elected. Bishops serve in a jurisdiction. So just as a pastor, I can serve anywhere within our conference. A bishop serves anywhere within a jurisdiction. Okay. Then our bishops, um, we have a a council of bishops. There's not one of them that makes all the decisions, not like a pope. And even the decisions that they do make are ones that are informed by by the general conference. So they don't get to do a lot on their own. (laughs) You know, there's lots of discerning. There's lots of working together. So all of that to say, it's only ever every four years when our general conference meets that anything can change about our polity, um, anything within our, our book of discipline. And 
a general conference, there is representation for pastors and laity. So it's not just all the pastors making the decisions. It's not the bishops making the decisions. Um, there are lay people there as well. Mm-hmm. So it's everybody is there and be able to speak for the general church. So the the general church has continued to make changes and, and evolve um, you know, what our pastors do, what our bishops do. And, and I think it's significant too, to be able to say that, that bishops are not, they're not given another ordination. They are an ordained elder, just like pastor Allen, like myself, that are just called into another, um, another uh, specific ministry. Okay. Right. Um, so, then the thing about the difference um, in uh, licensed local pastor versus ordained elder and the different things we're called to, it's not, um, I don't want us to think about it as a level of achieving. Okay. Um, but it's a different, a different way of serving, a different call to serve. So, while an elder is called to um, worship and order and sacrament and service, those are actually the, the four things that is, an elder is specifically called to do those things within the life of the church. A licensed local pastor is one who says, I feel like God is calling me to be used in a congregation to be able to step into that role as pastor without going to seminary and to be used in this place at this time. Um, they're not going to carry that with them forever. Mm-hmm. This is just, I just want to, I just feel like God's going to use me right now. Okay. Right. So for them to have that license, um, it's only invoked whenever they're appointed, right? They're not appointed by the Bishop that it's only a district superintendent. And, and yet they're able to, they're given the, um, the responsibility to engage all of those roles just as the elder would in that specific congregation. Okay. So a licensed local pastor is able to do communion because the district superintendent has given them that license to do it. Okay. So they can do the weddings, they can do the funerals, they can do a baptism because they've been given that license. Okay. Now, should the district superintendent say, thank you for serving these six months. I'll give you a call if I need, you know, next time I need you, then that license is no longer invoked. And so they're going to go back to, you know, going to a different church or just being involved in the life of the church in a different way. Okay. And I get the whole, you know, oh, well, we're just going to have communion and we're going to do it our own way, (laughs) even though we don't have the pastor here with us. And, um, you know, I, I do think it's a significant thing to be able to be together and have that pastor, um, praying that blessing over the communion, over the elements. Mm -hmm. You know, there's something very holy about that. 
Absolutely. And yet I hear, you know, I hear people and I, I get it. Um, when you say, well, yeah, but Jesus just said, whenever you get together, do this. And we do have within the United Methodist Church something that we call a love feast. Mm-hmm. And so it's not the consecrated elements, um, but it is sharing in a bread and a cup and communing in that way without, yeah, without like a pastor present. So I get that. But it's just one of those holy mysteries that it's not just something that we do within the United Methodist Church. And it's not only because John Wesley said it back there all those years ago (laughs) and because the Anglican Church did it. Um, You know, this has been been a part of the process for for all of Christendom, (laughs) practically, you know, that, that you were coming together, but it was, it was the leader of the house church that was going to be calling us together. Okay. And saying the prayers. And, um, I I know that communion's always been held in in a special light. mm -hmm. Um, and I, I don't disagree with that at all. Um, it just seems weird that like, I don't know, to, to distinguish, even though like, you know, a group might have a love feast Mm -hmm. to distinguish it different than communion Mm -hmm. when it's the same act, just without a pastor. It it, like, it almost feels like it's in its own special garden. (laughs) If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and then like pushback. So why shouldn't it, you know, why shouldn't it be its own special thing? Why shouldn't it be regarded so highly? Um, no, and I'm not arguing for or against. I'm just saying, you know, yeah. there it should be honored and revered in such a way. And, you know, I mean, I remember being in like youth kind of things and laughing and I don't, I don't know that I actually ever did it. I don't know that any of my leaders actually ever did it. But like talking about like Doritos and Pepsi or something <laughs> instead of bread and juice. And, um, and like, you know, I, I get, I get trying to be relevant and getting your, the youth attention and just, I don't know, but there's just, I've never wanted to do that. I've never wanted to because I don't want it to ever come across as something that's cheap sure, or as something that is flippant or that we can do whenever we feel like it, just because we feel like it. Um, you know, there's still, I think there still should be that type of reverence for it. Oh, absolutely. And, um, and so I think we we kind of get into kind of a a fuzzy line there when we start, um, like I said, trying to be relevant, which is just a tricky thing, anyways, <laughs> yeah. or or just make it. We think that we need to do something to make it more special mm-hmm. or memorable when the act itself is really enough. Yeah. Yeah. I can see, you know, in in a moment of, I don't have anything else around. Yeah. Like if you need to replace an element, mm-hmm. um, 
and just let the symbology of what you're doing carry the weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, but out of out of a sense of making it relevant, I I would I would agree. Like yeah, just yeah, just stick with with what's yeah. what's what's used. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I guess my mindset uh, towards the original question is like, does that lead to the appearance of like a barrier of entry. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I see the point on both sides. You know, when I was um, first out of college and I was serving a church, well, I was the Krishna director. One, one year for Christmas Eve, the pastor decided that they were going to leave before the 11 o'clock service, the Christmas Eve service, so that they could go, like they could start driving to be with their family. Mm -hmm. And they asked me to do the service. And the 11 o'clock service was always communion. Oh. And I was like, uh, what do I do? I've never led communion before. And I said, are you going to consecrate the elements before you leave? And, and, I mean, I'm sure we've all seen like the big eye roll, like the look on the person's face was just like, you've got to be kidding me. And I thought, wait a second, I've never done this. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. What are they going to think? What is the congregation going to think? These are people who come all like this is their favorite service of the entire year. Mm-hmm. And they're going to know that I'm a fraud. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like they're going to know that I don't know what I'm doing. And that why would we why would we allow that to happen? Why would we ever want that to be the perception? Yeah. Um and I was just oh my gosh, I couldn't believe it was happening. Um, so you better sure I did everything I could to prepare for that service and like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And I practiced and whatever. Um, and I'm pretty sure that that pastor just went on vacation and didn't care about leaving me and sure as heck didn't consecrate the elements because we hadn't had communion, you know, at any other service that evening. So that was it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It wasn't like a cursory prayer or anything. Um, and yet, you know, one of the reasons that it's so important to me is that I never want anyone to think that they can't have access. Or because, because we talk about it, especially in the United Methodist Church, about communion being a means of grace, that it is, at, when we participate in communion, it is one of the ways in which God communicates his grace to us. So while we say that that we want, you know, we invite people to come who believe in Jesus Christ and earnestly repent of their sins, even that can feel like a hindrance. You know, to be like, okay, you can come if you've repented of your sins. Have you <laughs> have you told God you're sorry? Have you admitted that you were bad this week? Yeah. Um cuz if you haven't I don't know if you should come up here. <laughs> you know, and I 
Because I feel like God's grace supersedes all that. Oh, yeah. Yes, we do. I mean, we need to be repentant. We need to have yeah. that time to be able to repent and 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 confess our sins before God. And every time, like, I always try to say, if, if I'm not doing the specific prayer or that specific call, like, that's written out... Um, I always try to say something like that. And there are definitely sometimes at communion that we make more of a point of it than others. Um, but even that can feel like a hindrance to people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, is there always a perfect way? Is there always a perfect explanation or understanding? No. I don't feel like there is because you're always going to, you're always going to come up with something. Yeah. Um, and yet it's still available. Like there's still always still opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. It's probably not satisfactory, but <laughs> I mean, it, I think it's kind of where we are on the issue a lot of the times. Yeah, uh, it's just it's good to have those kind of conversations. Yeah. you know, mm-hmm. um, even if there's no actual answer, like a definitive, like, no, this is this is it, and this is why. Yeah, like, just just talking it out helps. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, I, I I've mentioned this, but like, I grew up Catholic. Yeah. So like I I get the, you know this is how we do things. This sure. is why, this is special and this is special. But like, I don't know. The more I've grown, I, mm-hmm. I look at some of the stuff that we do in the church, not just in the Methodist church, mm-hmm. but in general. And I'm like, you know, could we? Are we too strict on that? Mm-hmm. Or is that is that the definitive? boundary to the sandbox for a reason mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I, I go back and forth on mm-hmm. on some of those questions all the time sure and you know some of it is straight from scripture too you know like part of the reason that we have deacons and elders um you know in acts you read about those who were the ones proclaiming the word sharing the good news and then the ones that were actually staying home you know, they weren't the ones traveling and, yeah. and sharing. They were the ones who were staying home that they were the ones making sure that the widows were taken care of. Mm-hmm. You know, they were the ones who were doing the food distributions. Yeah. Um, so there was this, they were the significant players, the significant role that they had, but there was their role was different. Mm-hmm. Not better, not less, different. Yeah. And and I think that's really the you know that's so it's so important it's so essential that we hear that you know between licensed local pastor and course of study and seminary and ordained and commissioned and blah 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 blah. um even lay speaker you know we have that's part of we have lay training so a person within the congregation is who we refer to as laity and um that you know, we have a lay, uh, a lay speaker within our congregation, and she continues to go for classes because they, you know, they ask you to do. I don't know if it's annually, but regularly they have you come and just do a class here or there. And that's not even 
you know, the classes that a licensed local pastor does. Yeah. Uh, that's completely different, right? Because a lay a lay speaker is somebody who's just going to be one who will fill a pulpit for you. Okay. Or lead Bible studies for you. And um, but they do have a significant place in the life of the congregation. They're actually on uh, different committees just by virtue of being your lay speaker. So, you know, we're just called to different things for different reasons and different times. And, um, but there's a, but there's a place for all of it. So So it's, it's more like what I'm hearing is it's more like managing responsibilities as opposed to saying you have subsequent theological understanding to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah, this is right. So a deacon doesn't want to pastor a church and have the responsibility for the finances and have the responsibility for the care of the building and have to worry about staff. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Um, That's not their ministry. Um, An elder is saying, not only am I going to care for the spiritual well-being of a congregation, not only am I going to make sure the sacraments are taken care of, I'm also going to be the one who orders the life of the church. And I'm going to make sure that we have the right people on the committee and that we're following the book of discipline and that the roof isn't leaking Yeah, and that we can pay our bills. So, you know, so yeah, it's yeah. just, there's different, there's a different set of responsibilities that are carried out by each one Mm -hmm. makes sense yeah okay good (laughs) i'm glad (laughs) yeah and so yeah that i mean that i think that definitely speaks to the longevity of the the training then sure you know because if you're going to be an elder and you want to you feel like you're called to take care of all of that stuff Mm -hmm. and serve as you know maybe that kind of shepherd Mm -hmm. i would i would hope as an, uh, a congregation member mm-hmm. <laughs> that a pastor who wants that has had enough time to uh, not only understand scripture, but understand mm-hmm. the inner workings of, of a church yeah. and a community yeah. and a family. And, you know, maybe taking classes for six months at, at Maybe not enough experience to yeah. to make me feel confident. Sure. Um, so I, I can understand. I can definitely understand that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's. I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm so grateful to be in the position that I'm in as associate pastor. Um, look, sure, I went to seminary and I did licensing school, and um, I've got the book of discipline and mentors all over the place. But to be able to sit with um, a senior pastor. And in this situation, you know, he's been in ministry for 30-ish years and more, probably more than that. Um, but he's been in these different congregations and he's seen how this works and how that works. And and it is nothing. <laughs> it takes <laughs> little energy for him to recall most things that are written in the Book of Discipline. Because he's had to use them over and over and over again. And so for me, it's just such a gift to be able to sit here and go, here we are at a trustees meeting. And yep, he can, you know, Pastor Allen can just tell you exactly how you need to do something because he's done it all those times before. Yeah. It's it's a pretty awesome 
spot for me to be in to just be able to glean all that extra knowledge that instead of just you know what I already know knowing the resources um, I can just glean that extra little bit of experience from him yeah it's pretty cool yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> definitely cool yeah so it's hard to believe this Friday I actually get to be ordained one of the little things that I'm sure nobody knows or haven't really noticed, um, or maybe you have noticed that um, at, when you're commissioned, we, you know, we have robes that we wear, uh, but when you're commissioned, it, and I don't know how long it's been this way, but um, we, we don't wear a stole, right? And so a stole is that colored fabric that you know that a pastor typically wears that coordinates mm -hmm. with um with the altar cloth and whatever else you might use to decorate right so typically like right for pentecost it's red for on easter it's white and in lent it's purple christmas is blue we've got green in the ordinary time whatever mm -hmm. that is um between pentecost and <laughs> christmas and so sometimes your the pastor's stole might match that or or be similar in color for a wedding. Well, you know, it's just the extra fancy thing. Yeah. But at my ordination, I will actually that I'll actually receive my stole for the first time. And um so I'm pretty excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> but Pastor Allen said, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to stand in solidarity for you for the next couple of years. And, and so for the last two years, he has not worn a stole. He's, he said, I'm going to wait until you get your stole. And then that is special. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty neat. So, um, so this coming Friday, the 18th, I'll actually, when, when I'm ordained, the bishop will actually put the stole then around my neck. And um, and then I'm, I think we've, we're planning to uh, that Sunday, then that I'm back last Sunday of June, we're going to wear our robes and our stoles. Oh, that'll be special. <laughs> so, yeah, that'll be special. First yeah. time within a congregation. That's going to be really cool. I actually... Sure. I. I, I noticed that he didn't wear it, but uh -huh. at this point, I don't remember him ever wearing it. It's like a weird... That's so funny. Oh, yeah, because I mean, I mean, I know he has. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about what he usually wears at Christmas and what he usually wears for a wedding or a funeral or... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because we, I mean, we had a year, that, that year before you got here. Mm -hmm. uh, when he came, mm -hmm. I'm sure he did. Oh, I just, yeah. I don't remember at this oh, yeah. point. He was here for two years before I was. It was two years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Time goes so quick. I know it really <laughs> does. I don't feel like I've I've been here two years, but I have. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty cool. But, so yeah, that'll be you that'll know be the special. little things, the little things that you don't think about and just don't. You know, I'm sure I'm sure most people haven't thought a thing about it. But yeah, yeah, the little things. <laughs> Hey, uh, thank you all for joining us. 
uh, Pastor Ty, thanks for answering those questions. Sure. Um, didn't mean to catch you off guard with a couple of them, but uh, yeah, as we as we talk about kind of the way we do church, um, that helps clarify some stuff, especially since I never learned about our church history. Mm. And so, there's so much more. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, as always, uh, if you have any questions or comments, um, send us a direct message on our Facebook page. You can find us at Chippewa United Methodist Church. Um, we are on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Um, make sure to share, uh, leave a comment and review if you want, uh, and just help uh, help us get the word out and. That way we can bring as many people to the conversation as possible. See you next time.